you see something so new, so disruptive, so violent, whatever, that it it takes you minutes to even be able to respond to it yeah. appropriately, you know? And especially in medicine, if it's something you've never seen before, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you've read about it in a book or heard it on a podcast or something like that. So like the knowledge is back there somewhere, but the neural pathway to get there is just like a faint whisper. That's a mindset switch that I see, especially folks who are new at EMS or emergency medicine, they tend to still be thinking of the common stuff, Mm -hmm. which works for them for the most part, because it's the common stuff. But our job in this field is I need to find out what's I need to think about what's going to kill you first. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, then I can start thinking about all the rest of the stuff. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is an episode of the thinking series where I talk to Associate Medical Director of Austin Travis County EMS, Dr. Heidi Abraham. You've heard from her once before in the very popular episode, Anti-Fragile. This time, we sat on my new patio with the microphone cords stretched as far as they could be stretched, over 10 feet apart, as we discuss bradycardia. We're both prone to easy distraction, so you'll hear us commenting on the birds and deer and squirrels that make their cameo appearances. Dr. Jason Pickett would have me call her T-Rex, but I'm not having it. She's Dr. Heidi Abraham, and I absolutely love her company, and I hope you do too. Look, I turned into an old lady. Aw, you got your little... It's a birding. Oh, that's... My mom has one of those. There you go. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic transformed me. Look, there's two babies right there. (laughs) Are are we going to keep doing this for the whole podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. Okay, so we're going to do it for the whole podcast. Dr. Heidi Abraham, thanks for joining me. Who who are you? Where did you come from? I once texted <laughs> I once texted you and said, "Look where are you from? Where did you grow up?" And I got like this long paragraph back. It wasn't straightforward because you've lived in a bunch of different states, I think. There's a lot of history. Where did you go to med school? So, I went to medical school at Wright State University up in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I did my emergency medicine residency up there as well. And then my good friend, Jason Pickett, kicked me out of the nest and promised to burn my house down if I didn't leave Ohio. So I went to Houston, Texas for my EMS fellowship, worked with the Houston Fire Department for a couple of years, fell in love with Texas, moved to San Antonio. And now I am the medical director for New Braunfels Fire Department and associate medical director for Austin Travis County EMS. So I have my two dream jobs. That's cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And you once told me you could just do that. Yeah. Well, and I also work clinically. So I work I work about eight to 10 shifts a month in the ER. Um, and I love getting to do that side of clinical medicine as well. I wanted to do a thinking series with you. I don't know why I picked bradycardia, actually. It's, it's what I'm interested in. I believe I picked bradycardia. Did you? Yes. I made an Instagram post of the causes of bradycardia once. It was actually just a whiteboard that we did randomly in class. And then I took a picture of it and posted it. What's on your list of causes of bradycardia? Oh, goodness. That's a very long list. Um, really? Because when I ask people, sometimes people struggle coming up with the list. The list of common causes of bradycardia is, is pretty short. There's like two or three things on there. The list of all the possible causes of bradycardia is a lot longer. I think it's important to keep all those different things in mind because 
the benefit of a differential diagnosis is if you don't, if you're not thinking about it, you're not going to find it, you know, and some of these things are a little bit more obscure. And if you're not thinking about it, you could very easily miss it on a very sick patient. The list is a little bit different in adults versus in kids. And most of the time I say adults and kids are the same. Kids are small adults. There's nothing different. All you're changing is the size of your equipment, the size of your dose. There's a couple areas of medicine where kids are different from adults and cardiac is one of those. Um, bradycardia in kids is respiratory, respiratory, respiratory until proven otherwise. Um, hypoxia causes incredible bradycardia in kids, and kids respond incredibly well to just oxygen. Um, okay, so causes of bradycardia vary. It depends on if you're thinking about adult or kid. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I – do I want you to just list off your list? Not really. I mean, I think we need to remember that the other key um, or most likely cause of bradycardia in kids is the hyperpolarization activated. <laughs> you can't. Good try. <laughs> Cyclic nucleotide gated potassium channel four. What are you even talking about? This is some congenital thing. <laughs> yes. You're getting side eye right now. I practiced that for so long last night. I was like, I'm going to remember the name of this thing and throw it out there in the middle of the conversation. Well, let's do it. Ready? Go. I think the other important cause of bradycardia in kids that we need to keep in mind is the hyperpolarization. <laughs> wow, I wasn't looking at you. <laughs> yes, doctor. <laughs> I mean, one of the other common causes of bradycardia in kids that we need to keep in mind is the hyperpolarization activated cyclic nucleotide gated potassium channel 4 gene, which we call the HCN4 gene for short. <laughs> and thanks for coming. It's been a great episode. <laughs> You're welcome. That's like a stark contrast to the text that you were sending me. Hang on. Let me let me read a text that you sent to what we were going to talk about with bradycardia. Bradycardia. Usually bad. Sometimes not. Can be from lots of stuff. There's ways to fix it. You should know a bunch of them. The end. Yep. <laughs> I do want to talk about fixing it and when sure. you fix it. Sure. Um, so just to preface the the whole conversation, I want to talk about causes. So when people see bradycardia, they definitely need to address that, particularly if the patient's unstable, but then also be thinking like, well, what caused that and, and go digging for that as well. Well, and that's the fun thing about emergency medicine and EMS is I'm not just trying to figure out what's causing it or I'm not just like I'm doing everything at once, mm-hmm. you know, and especially when we get farther into talking about treating bradycardia, depending on how sick the patient is, you may be doing like all the things to treat the bradycardia all at once. You know, if they're relatively stable, you can start with this kind of stepwise, gradual, you know, let's try a little bit of this and then let's try that. If they're crashing on you, it's like do all the things, do the pacing and the drugs and the airway and the everything all at mm-hmm. once, mm-hmm. you know. Do you want to do common causes? You want to, you want to tell us about <laughs> So, so not the, the HCN4 gene? An esoteric. <laughs> let's, let's do uh, the common. Sure. So common causes. So in kids, I mean, it really is just respiratory. The most common cause other than that is just a strong parasympathetic drive in kids. Um, and that's totally benign and there's really nothing to do about it. There is a very small handful of genetic diseases and stuff like that. But for the most part in kids, it's hypoxia. If they have congenital heart disease and they've had uh, surgical repair of that, you can sometimes run into problems with the conduction pathways um, just as a result of scar tissue or actual surgical disease or something like that. You can take that, yeah. I can stop recording too. Hey, good morning. What's up? Hey guys, it's me popping in here. This happened a couple of times where Heidi kept getting these phone calls uh, from medics in the field and we would stop recording while she'd talk to them. Uh, I wanted to take this chance, this break, to tell you about iSimulate. iSimulate is the sole sponsor of Medic Mindset and I'm proud to have partnered with them because they're really proving to be a valuable tool during the pandemic. 
When our college closed because of COVID, I grabbed the plant from my office (laughs) and I asked our lab coordinator if I could take an iSimulate monitor home with me. It was a smart move because it has been a key solution to many of the challenges in this new landscape. I'm thankful for their sponsorship and I'm thankful for the products they make. You're working one of your shifts in the ED and someone says, you know, the patient in room such and such is... uh, they have some type of, but not, you know, kind of um, nebulous complaint, weakness or something, and they're bradycardic. Where mm-hmm. does your mind go if they're maybe in their 40s, 50s? So first I have to decide whether or not to panic. So mm-hmm. they're bradycardic. Are they crashing bradycardic? Is this a stable bradycardia? Are they continuing to deteriorate or are they just hanging out? This is one of those things where you really want to treat the patient, not the number. I can't tell you how many times I've had a patient with a heart rate in the 30s, sometimes even in the 20s. And the crew or the nurses are like, hey, we need to do something about this. Uh, you know, let's give them give them all the drugs. Let's start pacing them. And the patient is sitting there chilling and they're, you know, reading a book, watching TV. They have in no the 20s? Complaints. I've seen this oh, in yeah. the 30s. Yeah. I've had a couple in the mm, 20s, too. That's, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. And they, you know, they have a blood pressure of 130 over 80 and an O2 sat of 100%. And they've got no complaints. I'm probably going to put the pads on them, mm-hmm. you know, just to ward off the evil spirits. And I might give them a touch of atropine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mostly I'm going to be focused on figuring out why they're bradycardic. Mm-hmm. You know, do they are they just their heart is getting old and they need a pacemaker? Do they have an electrolyte abnormality? You know, is there something else going on that's causing it? If the patient is truly crashing, then I'm going to focus a lot more on let's fix them and then let's figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, patients in their 40s and 50s, you start seeing some ischemic heart disease that's causing it. I, I think the important thing to remember on STEMI patients who are bradycardic is mostly what they need is a cath lab. Mm-hmm. You know, they need to get that clot removed. That's a little bit different from normally we preach, you know, stay and fix things a little bit. Yeah. Um, we've really, and, and that's been a huge transformation in EMS over the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm really proud of the crews for making that switch because it's hard when initially you were taught diesel fuel is the answer to everything, right? Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden it's like, no, no, you've got this whole, you know, here's all your drugs, here's all your protocols, you're a clinician, here's all the things that you can do, go fix the patient and then take them to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And the crews have really responded well to that and, and are doing a fantastic job. But this is one of those cases where it's like, yeah, you know, like fix a couple things real quick while you're moving to the ambulance and then get to yeah. the hospital so they can get to the cath lab because that's yeah. ultimately what's going to fix them mm-hmm. in this particular case. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Bradycardia, I think about hyperkalemia comes up. For yeah, me. so that's another big one. And the fun thing with hyperkalemia is one of the ways you treat it is, is with calcium, right, to stabilize the cardiac membranes. Calcium is a good treatment for all other kinds of bradycardia too because it helps increase the cardiac contractility. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that's usually that we usually think about. It's not in the official ACLS algorithm, but calcium is one of the second or third drugs that I'm reaching for when I have a patient who's bradycardic. And then I think about all the toxicology, like the overdoses, beta blocker, calcium channel right. blocker. So that's a big cause in both kids and adults. You know, the kid, that's one of those one pill can kill things that we worry about in kids. They mm. see grandmas. I've you never know. heard that term. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole list of of one pill can kill drugs. And obviously, the smaller the kid is, the more likely one pill is to be enough to kill them. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be, you know, it's your beta blockers, your calcium channel blockers, um, medications that that affect uh, glucose levels, uh, the sulfonylureas, um, those kinds of things Uh, can be, you know, a single pill is deadly in kids. Um, and it's, I think it's important for folks to kind of know that list because so often in kids, we tend to say, oh, they only took one or two pills. It's probably not yeah. that much, which is the case with a lot of other things that kids get into. But like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers can make a kid bradycardic enough to kill them. 
Um, but we see it in adult in adults too, you know, and a patient may be on their normal dose of calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. And for whatever reason, they're just not clearing it as well as they should be, you know, maybe they started to get and actually there's there's a whole it's called brash syndrome. Um, and it's basically the patient, the older patient who gets hypovolemic for whatever reason, maybe after a GI bug, maybe in the summertime, because it's hot, and they got dehydrated. Now they start to have a little bit of renal failure. Now their mm. kidneys aren't clearing their beta blocker as much as it should be. They're still taking their normal dose of beta blockers, which was working fine previously. Well, now it's starting to build up in the body a little bit. Now they start to get bradycardic. Now they start not perfusing as well. Now they worsen the renal failure. Mm-hmm. Now they worsen the levels of the drug. And it's kind of this, you know, self-looking ice cream cone. It's, it keeps going. Um, huh? You haven't heard that term. <laughs> It's it's a it's a vicious self perpetuating cycle. Self um, licking ice cream cone. Yeah, I've seen this too with people who are overweight and they lose a bunch of weight. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's important to remember that a lot of drugs are based on you know volume of distribution is the fancy word for it throughout the body. We see it in kids too, like when a kid starts having seizures after being well controlled on their seizure medications for mm-hmm. a while, is usually because they went through a growth spurt and the meds just didn't get adjusted fast mm-hmm. enough to keep up with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same same thing with adults. So when will you suspect a beta blocker overdose? What will it take besides maybe that they have a prescription for it? Is there Um, anything specific to that? No, not really. It's kind of always in the back of my mind. I've seen a a number of overdose, intentional overdose attempts. Mm. Um, And usually in that case, we know that they took it because it was in the bottle, you know, the box of drugs of everything else that they took. If it's on their prescription, I kind of generically have it in the back of my mind on any older patient who comes in who I just don't have a good history on, you know, either because they're obtunded or they came from a nursing home and who Mm -hmm. knows what the history is or something like that. Like I just always kind of assume that the patient is going to be on some kind of a beta blocker. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always thinking about it. So we've talked about beta blockers. We've talked about hyperkalemia. How about a organophosphate poisoning? Oh, that's a fun one. It is fun, right? It is. It's super fun. Um, You should be slightly concerned if you see a patient with organophosphate poisoning because either they need to have a really good story about fertilizer exposure or you should start worrying about, you know, an intentional um, terrorist kind of attack. Yeah. Yeah. Those patients need a lot of atropine. Lots and lots. Have you seen one? So I did my residency back up in rural Ohio, and every now and then we'd have a, you know, a farmer who'd been out. And I, don't, I never had a patient who was super, super sick. I've had patients where I had to give them like a couple milligrams of atropine maybe over the course of an hour, but never, never one where it was like all the signs and symptoms and we're giving them, you know, tons and tons of atropine. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I had a patient, they had gone out into a pasture and found mushrooms. Oh, no. And they were bradycardic. I fixed them right up with a little atropine. Nice. 0.5. When atropine works, it really works well. Mm -hmm. It's just that, so there is one study I read, it works in 25% of the patients. That's it. Huh. Which which is part of why I'm going to go to epi first in a really sick patient, because I don't have time to wait and see if if they're going to be one of the lucky 25%. You know, you were talking about you've had patients in the 20s. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for the novice to look at that number and a sick patient, right? They may be sick from who yeah. knows what. And to see someone in the 30s and not jump all over that. Maybe you can give some guidance about, you know, how do you sort through? Like, is it the cause of the problem or is it just a, a separate finding that's... Sure. Um, and that's where you have to dig a little bit and, you know, look at some of the other physical assessment stuff. What does their skin look like? What's their blood pressure? Are they, you know, what else is going on? I actually want to circle back to kids because this is another cons- very concerning cause of bradycardia in kids is eating disorders. 
mm-hmm. um, and actually, and and the problem is that we tend to see those in skinny, fit looking. I mean, it tends to be a lot of like high school athletes and stuff who are incredibly fit and probably have a lower heart rate at baseline, but they may also be dealing with an eating disorder. Mm. Um, so now they have, you know, some nutritional deficiencies, maybe some electrolyte imbalances, mm-hmm. stuff like that, that's actually causing them to be bradycardic. But if we don't think about it, we're just mm-hmm. going to attribute it to their athleticism oh, and, yeah. and ignore it. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a really serious cause of bradycardia in kids that, you know, that needs to be in the back of your mind. Yeah, because if it's electrolytes now, we're not just affecting the heart. We're affecting like the whole nervous all the system, rest of, yeah. all the cell membranes. All, all the like things, everything. everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes in medicine, you don't have a clear answer. And you say, well, let's try this and see if it works. And, oh, great, that worked. Let's, you know, do the next thing. Or, oh, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and sometimes it's kind of a process of discovery as you're treating the patient. You're, you know, ruling things in or out by the treatment that you're using. As I'm sitting here with you, I'm... I'm well, you're, you're generally like not afraid of stuff. It seems like. <laughs> I mean, I don't like flying cockroaches. I know, but in medicine, you're kind of like, let's do this, yeah, and we'll deal with the. Yeah, I don't want to so say I mean, fallout, I, but we'll deal with it as it comes. Like we're going to try this. Yeah, so I mean, I think some of that comes with experience. You have to be careful not to get cavalier about it. Um, I mean, I also tend to be a little bit of a minimalist, so I kind of let things ride a little bit unless the patient's actually crashing. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but I, th- you know, I mean, there's a lot of things in mess. Ep- epinephrine is the other thing that I think we need to not be afraid of. Yeah. Cause we've always, I mean, and Pickett actually said it well, you know, we're afraid to give it to the older patient who's in anaphylaxis or, mm-hmm. you know, COPD, asthma, respiratory distress. Uh, well, it doesn't work on COPD, but asthma, you know, some kind of respiratory distress that would benefit from epinephrine. And everybody says, oh, well, we don't want to use epi because their heart is old. Well, the other thing an old heart doesn't tolerate is hypoxia. Right. You know, epinephrine yeah. is actually incredibly safe when used well, when used appropriately. So what's using it well? So it depends on how sick the patient is. Um, if they're like kind of heading towards crashing, I'm probably giving them like 50 micrograms all the way up to maybe half a milligram, depending on how sick they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting an epi drip started. Obviously, you have to remember epi doesn't last for very long. So I'll give them some push dose epi while I'm getting the drip set up. Yeah. You know, and and getting the pacer pads on and calling the cardiologist to come, you know, float, float a transvenous pacer or take them to the cath lab or whatever else. And checking their electrolytes and giving them calcium and all the things. All at once. All at once. All at once. Mm-hmm. All right. I found my list of Brady's. We got hypoxia was on my first my first yeah. thing. Yep. Do you think the hypoxic adult eventually Brady's down too? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but that is kind of the final pathway is the patient gets extremely hypoxic and Brady's down and arrests. Mm-hmm. This is actually a list that my students made. So they put on the list dying. Yes. Sometimes people die that way. Oh, by a lot down. of times patients die that way. So interestingly, um, in... It's okay. You can comment if you want. There's a deer. <laughs> <laughs> so the drowning patient goes tachycardic and then goes bradycardic and then dies. Yep. With, without going through V-fib or V-tac usually. Like it's usually tachy, brady, PEA, asystole. This is actually a... a timely comment if i do say so myself what i'm about to bring up um i had a patient who was we think on pcp maybe some paranoid schizophrenia i don't actually know what came out of it but he um, was combative to like his dying minute biting Mm -hmm. people and they had um maced him and done like everything they knew to do to get him to settle down um and they ended up like a, a group of people 
laying on him in the prone position. Ooh. Yeah. He arrested in that position. I was actually there. Mm-hmm. We all kind of got called. And then I was sitting in the truck just kind of watching this all play out because uh, in hindsight, I wish I had given him a verset or something, but I was actually afraid. That's what it comes down to is I was afraid to get out of my truck because he was just a handful the whole time. Yeah. Like they never really seemed to have him under control. And we need ketamine blow darts. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. I, looking back, I'm like, I could have gotten to him. Uh, I was young and like completely had never seen anything like that. You know, I was just like, what in the heck? He was just like, yeah, it was just like a dust ball. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, yeah, I, you know, getting kind of into the mindset thing, you know, when your OODA loop sees something that it's never seen mm-hmm. before, sometimes it takes a while to orient to it. Yeah. You know, we, we normally talk about the OODA loop in terms of seconds and microseconds and things like that, but sometimes you see something so new, so disruptive, so violent, whatever, that it it takes you minutes to even be able to respond to it yeah. appropriately, you know? And especially in medicine, if it's something you've never seen before, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you've read about it in a book or heard it on a podcast or something like that. So like the knowledge is back there somewhere, but the neural pathway to get there is just like a faint whisper, right? You know, and, and your brain doesn't remember that, that there's a road there that it can take. Yeah, and this was you know? pre-YouTube, so... What I do now with students who haven't seen those patients yet, they're really good YouTube videos of yeah. PCP patients, and they're all naked and sweaty. And I still YouTube's remember really good for seeing it, patient presentations. It it really is. Um, and sometimes you're kind of cringing a little bit, like, why are they filming the person mm-hmm. and not doing something? Mm-hmm. You know, like the videos of the kids having trouble breathing. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. Like, and they'll sit there for minutes, and you're like, somebody give the kids <laughs> some epi, like fix their breathing. <laughs> Yeah. No, but I remember the first PCP patient I saw also, I was, you know, we'd gotten called to the scene for a guy flipping cars over. And sure enough, I mean, it's this like big, tall, huge dude. Mm -hmm. And he's storming. It's the middle of the night, of course. And he's storming up and down the road. He's flipping cars. He's ripping gates and fences out of the ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll link in the show notes to this one. I love that. Like, um, he punches through six foot fences just wood, you know, wow. it's just like getting yep. all splintered up and nasty. Yeah. Um, it's funny to bring up a PCP patient in a bradycardia episode because we they're, expect they're usually be, tachycardic. Well, he's a little yeah. tachycardic, but yeah. the positional asphyxia, them laying yeah. on him like that, he braided down. And um, luckily, as soon as he became limp or they recognized he was unresponsive, I was right there. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it actually was ideal and was able to uh, intubate and oxygenate him and we got pulses back like immediately. I, I, sometimes I've wondered even if he was ever pulseless or more bradycardic. Super bradycardic. When we got him on the monitor, it was a wide, complex, very slow PEA is was my understanding of what was going on. Well, and the challenge in those patients, um, so there, there's a 10% mortality in those patients to begin with, even without any interference from other human beings, even without anything else. Um, and they have, I mean, their pathophysiology is incredibly complicated because they're hyperthermic, they're acidotic, mm-hmm. um, they can be hypoxic, they've got, you know, drugs messing up all their, like, everything is going wrong. You're talking about uh, excited delirium, huh? Yeah. 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 So dying. Causes so dying. bradycardia. Hypothyroidism. And don't pick on me for my list. These are the ones my students came up with. That's not, yeah, that's a good list. I'm looking at my list, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Hypothyroidism. So that one, the thyroid disorders are fun because they normally have a fairly classic presentation and the patient doesn't always notice some of the symptoms. And then you, so here's how you look really smart, right? Because you have hypothyroid on your differential diagnosis. And as you start to get some clues, you kind of start asking more and more questions down that pathway. And the patient, like every time the patient is like, yeah, I have been having that. 
you know, and then you can start doing your physical exam stuff and you find like the changes in their nails and the changes in their skin and stuff like that. And the patient just looks at you like you're a complete genius. Cushing's triad was on here. Mm -hmm. And then toxins, we've got beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, organophosphates, which we've discussed all of those, and then opiates as well. Yeah. So opiates is one that we tend to forget about. The bradycardia actually responds well to Narcan. Do you think it's the hypoxia that's causing it? Ginger, there's two baby deer down there. I know. They're so cute. I should name them. Um, so it's not actually only the hypoxia. There's, there's an effect on the, um, on the heart as well directly. I've got vagal tone. Yeah. Which is kind of a catch-all for a lot of different things. So I've actually had um, a handful of patients now who were in so much pain from their broken ankle, you know, whatever other trauma, that they were bradycardic down to the 30s. You know, and we're sitting there trying to figure out, like, did, you know, did they also get a cardiac contusion when they mm-hmm. had their trauma? Like, what else is going on here? And then you give them some pain medicine and their heart rate comes back up to normal. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And tricky. Oh, very tricky. Yeah. Because, and again, that's one of those things where if you're not thinking about it, you, you know, yeah. now, now you're scared to give them pain medicine because maybe they're going to be hemodynamically unstable, which is a bad excuse, but, you know, and you, it takes you a long time to figure it out. And sometimes it's just coincidentally, like you gave them some pain medicines and then you notice that their heart rate got better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just got lucky. Yeah. Hypothermia. Yes. Aren't my students smart? Your students are super smart. So hypothermia is not something that people down here in Texas normally think about. So, I mean, we saw it a lot up in Ohio. You know, patients super, and that's why, the, you know, part of the saying, you're not dead until you're warm and dead. Um, but you can get it a lot down here in Texas, especially if it's raining, especially in some of our homeless populations. You can get some pretty significant hypothermia mm-hmm. that causes serious bradycardia. And then we've got hyperkalemia and MI. That's it for us. So I got a couple more for you. Good. Eye drops. Oh. Yeah. So we don't normally think about this because everybody kind of says, oh, eye drops. Well, those only affect the eyes. Mm -hmm. They don't get to the rest of the body. Well, a lot of the medications that we use in eye drops for like glaucoma and stuff like that um, can also cause bradycardia if they get systemically absorbed. And surprise, in older patients who don't metabolize stuff super well and who are taking these drugs on a regular basis, you can actually get some pretty significant systemic absorption. From the med itself. Because mm-hmm. yep. I, I thought you were getting it like, you know how um, you can rub your eyes and it's a vagal yeah, so, stimulus? Well, so that's the thing too. Um, rubbing your eyes. I've had patients who put in their contact lenses, like were new to contacts and passed out as they were putting their contacts in because they vagaled themselves down. Yeah. Um, See, this is why I love bradycardia. Oh, I, like the list is so long. Um, digoxin. I used to see oh, that one a lot. Yeah. Whoops. So you kind of covered that under like toxins and drugs and stuff. Yeah, but I didn't. Um, we didn't do cardiac glycosides. Oh, yeah. Well, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so digoxin, not not a ton of people are on digoxin anymore, mm-hmm. but dig toxicity can cause bradycardia. Um, and the fun thing with dig is you get a fairly classic, you know, ice cream scoop kind of shape to the ST segments that can clue you into that. Unfortunately, EMS doesn't have much in terms of treatment. That's it needs digibind to bind up the digoxin. I think that one has a very narrow therapeutic index. I think it's easy. It to- does. Yes. Well, and again, it tends to be older patients who are taking it who have decreased renal function and decreased drug metabolism, and it's easy for that one to build up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other one that I think people need to keep in mind is that lidocaine can cause bradycardia. A couple years ago, these studies started coming out that lidocaine is a good pain control option for patients with kidney stones. Um, because it's, you know, directly numbing up the urinary system. 
and we you know tend to give it in younger healthy I patients. I actually didn't know it worked like that. Oh yeah, had mixed results with it. Like I've had some patients where it worked great, and some patients where it did absolutely nothing. And that's kind of what the studies indicate. Also, is kind of mixed results from it. The dose that we're giving it at tends to be a really safe dose for most patients, but sometimes you can get lidocaine toxicity with that. Um, if you're injecting local anesthetic um, for, you know, closing up a wound or as a mm-hmm. digital block or a dental block or something like that, and the lidocaine accidentally gets into a blood vessel, mm-hmm. which is why you always aspirate before you inject. Mm-hmm. But if the lidocaine goes systemic, especially if you end up giving, you know, kind of on the higher dose, you can cause some pretty significant bradycardia with that. Let's say I came into your ER with bradycardia. What would you think would be the cause of my bradycardia? Did you check in for bradycardia or did you check in for another symptom? Right. That's a good question. Maybe I had syncope and bradycardia. Okay. So I'd be worried about cardiac stuff, mm-hmm. maybe an ischemic Because I'm old enough now. Uh, I mean, I've seen patients in their 20s and 30s with heart disease, especially with syncope. You worry about cardiac stuff. A massive pulmonary embolus can actually paradoxically cause some bradycardia just mm. because of the strain on the heart. Mm. So I'd worry a little bit about that one and kind of look into other, you know, are you having sharp pleuritic chest pain? Are you having shortness of breath? You know, and then you dig a little bit more into the history of what was happening. You know, did you, had you just stood up? Have you not been mm-hmm. drinking a lot of fluids recently? Um, were you stressed out? Did you have your knees locked? Something like that. Was this just a simple vagal episode and you're still bradycardic and hypotensive from it? And, you know, we lay you down and maybe give you some fluids and your heart rate starts coming back up again. And probably at mid-40s, you're thinking meds too, like, because I could be on a beta blocker for you hypertension could be. Yeah. or something. Yeah, I'd, I'd worry a little bit about meds. I'd ask about some of your medical history and see if we have any renal failure stuff to worry about, you know. Wait, renal failure? I'm too uh-huh. young for that. Hey, you can't go saying you're too young, you're too old for cardiac disease and too young for... <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could. Nope. Um, so we think about hyperkalemia as a result of renal failure or you know, blood pressure meds and stuff like that, there's a lot of patients who take potassium for whatever reason, either because, you know, they take like 20 pills a day and, you know, all the a pill of every single vitamin or something, mm-hmm. um, or because they're on a medicine like Lasix, which is a potassium wasting diuretic. So their doc has also put them on potassium supplement. And for some reason, the potassium supplement just got too high. Yeah. It built up for some reason. The list I just heard you make was kind of like worst first. You're talking about PEMI. Yeah. Hyperkalemia. Like you're thinking big, yeah, big stuff. So, so I think that's um, that's a mindset switch that I see, especially folks who are new at EMS or emergency medicine. They tend to still be thinking of the common stuff, mm-hmm. which works for them for the most part because it's the common stuff, you know. But our job in this field is I need to find out what's I need to think about what's going to kill you first, mm-hmm. and if you don't have that, then I can start thinking about all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. And sometimes even before thinking about what's worse first is acting. Yep. Like bradycardia, hypotension, unstable bradycardia. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to save your life and then I'm going to figure out what was killing you. Yeah. Yeah. I think bradycardia is probably a really good example of that. Yeah. Because it's just a, a rate issue. If you think, but you have to have enough info to decide that the rate is what's causing the problem. Right. Like you can't like going back to that healthy patient yeah. in their 20s and 30s uh, heart rate. Right. Yeah. So so it, that it's it tends to be one of those cases where I'm pro- if you're sick enough, I'm probably going to start treating your bradycardia anyway mm. while I figure out if the bradycardia is causing something or if something is causing the bradycardia. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still going to start treating the bradycardia just because it's it's enough to make you unstable. And I, I need to start yeah. treating it even while I figure out. You're kind of making me rethink this mega code we do. 
Really? Mm-hmm. So it's a head-injured patient who's bradycardic and unresponsive from the brain injury. What I've done is I start them at a rate of 60, and then I brady them down to see if they're, we will, they'll start, if I can rope them into, like, what, what is their threshold? It's a, it's a kind of fun thing to watch mm-hmm. because I watch their thinking, and, like, at 60, they're, like, cool. And then I put them at 50, and they notice it, but they're, like, cool. And then I put them at 40, also notice it, and cool. But the second it hits the 30s, they're, like, I need to change that number. I think 30s is, like, the magic number. Where it's, like, 40s, 40s is kind of close to 50s, which is kind of, like, the really, really low end of normal. But by the time you hit 30s, like, oh, that's not, that's mm-hmm. not good. That's, like, half of what it should be. Like, no matter what, I'm going to tinker with that. I need, to, I need to, I need to consider it. And yeah. I've, I've talked to them about it. And how if the blood pressure was, because we're talking about brain injury, we're talking about increasing ICP, we're talking about increasing MAP and increasing blood pressure. I've talked to them like, why, why once it was in the 30s, did you feel the need to address the rate when the pressure is just fine? What do they say? Good point, Ginger. You're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> they say that, that that number unnerved to them. That yeah. In the 30s, that's unnerving. And talking to you, I'm like, yeah, good point. Like. And it's it's not wrong to treat a bradycardia in a patient who's otherwise totally asymptomatic, but it's also not something that you have to rush to treat right away. Mm-hmm. You know, some, sometimes it's okay to just let the patient kind of ride for a little bit and think about it a little bit more. You know, the actual act of pacing seems like, and you can help me here, but it seems pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah. Like I could I could pace you right now. I, could I wouldn't to, be happy about it. I mean, I could try, but you wouldn't let me because right. you know jujitsu. Right. But I could pace you up to 120 and it, it would be zapping you and you'd be mad. But yeah. it, once I turn it off, like, I don't think it causes any long-term damage or what's the risks of pacing? So electricity is another one of those things that I think we're a little too afraid of in medicine. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of medics over the years who have been hesitant to cardiovert an unstable, you know, pulsing VTAC or an unstable AFib RVR. You know, they've got a heart rate in the 170s and a blood pressure of 60 or something. And we're scared of it. First, I think probably because we're afraid that it'll send the patient into VFib or asystole. And there is a very, very small chance that that will happen. It is, a, it is a real risk. Even with patient. Yes. It's less than 1%. Yeah, there's a risk. But if the patient is sick enough that that's what they need there's a much higher risk to not pacing them than there is to pacing them. Um, and I think the most important thing at that point is let me, let me get the pacing going and then let me make the patient as comfortable as I can or vice versa, depending on how stable or unstable the patient is, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the pain control comes either before or after I've started the pacing, but there, there should be some kind of pain control also. Well, tell me what you would do there. Like if they're having pain and does it depend on their level of pain? It depends on their level of pain. Um, it depends on how long I'm going to be pacing them for. It depends on how alert mm-hmm. the patient is. Mm-hmm. Um, if the patient is pretty unresponsive as a result of their bradycardia, I'm just going to start pacing them. Mm-hmm. And by the time I get their heart rate up high enough that they're awake and yelling at me, mm-hmm. then I can, you know, then I got their heart rate fixed. Now I can focus on some other stuff. Um, if it's a patient who is, I mean, I've had patients profoundly bradycardial like in the 20s who who needed to be paced and they were awake and talking with me. Um, and that's when I'm like, well, let's get 100 mics of fentanyl on board and here's what we're going to do and it's not going to be comfortable and we'll, you know, we'll work on it and figure it out. Um, I like fentanyl. I like ketamine. I'm hesitant to use benzos just because uh, for, for any kind of electricity, whether it be pacing them or cardioversion, you know, whatever, 
people tend to kind of go for benzos because it's got some amnestic properties and it, you know, knocks you out pretty quickly and stuff. But it also tends to make patients hypotensive, which is usually why they're getting electricity in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I like fentanyl. I like ketamine. I've ended up with patients on fentanyl drips uh, in the past. Usually like, you know, 50 mics an hour, 25 mics an hour kind of thing Mm -hmm. um, while they're on a pacer. And the other thing to remember for for us in EMS and emergency medicine, it's a temporary thing, you know. I mean, depending on how long your transport is, maybe 20, 30 minutes, unless you're, you know, in some super rural part of the country. Um, And then you get to the hospital. And even for me, you know, when I'm working in the ER rather than in the field, it's still a temporary thing. Like I'm calling cardiology to come either put in an actual, you know, a a temporary transvenous pacer or an actual implanted pacemaker. Um, So it's it's not a long-term thing, but I've had them on fentanyl drips for a couple of hours. I like ketamine, low-dose ketamine drips um, work really well for that also. In talking to people that work in hospital, specifically the the emergency department, I've learned how much it is so similar to EMS. It just happens to be inside a building, but it's still, um, you're not in the hospital. Yeah, you're not. Well, but so the ER is kind of cheating though, because like I'm, uh. I'm in a well-lit room. The patient is laying on a bed, usually, you know, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I have a team, d- depending on how busy, you know, I have a couple other people there to help me. I'm not bouncing around in the back, back of an ambulance. I usually have a little bit more history by the time the patient gets to me. Sometimes they come in the front door and nobody knows anything about them and they mm-hmm. just show up in my resuscitation bay. Mm-hmm. But usually, you know, EMS brings them in and they've already done some of the digging and detective work. A family member has showed up. The initial emergency that was making everybody freak out is passed and they can now calm down and answer my questions, you know, a little bit better. Yeah. So I, I actually, I very much enjoy working in the field a lot more than in the hospital because in the field, like, stuff is still kind of crazy and chaotic and mm-hmm. you, you know, you're working on the floor in a poorly lit room and it's 110 degrees in there. And there's like, you know, 27 family members standing over you yelling at you, you mm-hmm. know, like all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. it's, it's a lot, it's a lot harder to do it out in the field. It's totally different in those ways. It is. And the similarity I've experienced is that what you're doing in the emergency department is temporizing measures. It's usually yeah. not the definitive thing. It's you're, you're right in, in that respect, it's still very much, I'm, I'm fixing some immediate problems and then I'm passing it off to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you if a, a medic brought in a patient who's being paced and mm-hmm. they have the initial presenting rhythm, maybe the initial rhythm was kind of like some irregular stuff going on. So it wasn't just like a sinus brady at a perfect little 40. It was like there's some irregularity to it, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see that rhythm strip. And you can see a 12 lead that maybe, let's just say in, in this scenario, it's not a STEMI. Do you turn off the pacer to see what they're doing now? I've always been curious what I would do to receive a patient who's being paced because I've never been in that scenario. So I'm not going to turn the pacer off right away. Um, I think, and this this kind of bugs me sometimes when some of my emergency medicine colleagues don't really listen to EMS and they kind of want to take a fresh look at the patient, which is fine. You should take a fresh look at them, but give EMS a chance first. Cause it's usually some smart guys out there who probably did the right thing for the patient. I'm going to leave whatever is going on with the patient. I'm going to leave the pacer pads on. I'm going to leave them pacing. I'm going to leave them on the EMS monitor. 
we're going to move the patient over. I'm going to get history. We're going to get all of our stuff set up. We're going to, you know, draw blood. Like we're going to get things stabilized, get through the first five, 10 minutes of transition in the hospital. I'm going to ask some more questions of the patient or EMS or the family member, try and get a little bit more history just so I kind of have a better grasp on the picture. And then I might turn the pacer pads off and kind of see what our underlying rhythm is Mm -hmm. with epi and atropine and and our own pacer pads ready to go again, Mm -hmm. you know, just to kind of see where we're at. Pacing doesn't fix the heart rate. Mm-hmm. pacing can temporize it. So if there was something else going on that was causing the bradycardia that we've maybe fixed knowingly or unknowingly, mm-hmm. you know, now maybe their heart, it will be back up to normal. But unless EMS has really administered some intervention or something has changed in the patient's clinical picture, they're probably still going to be bradycardic and I'm still going to be pacing them. Yeah. Um, you know how old people get pacemakers? Yeah. <laughs> um, Young people get them sometimes. Oh, that's something we forgot on our differential diagnosis. Please. Lyme disease. <laughs> Classic <laughs> cause of bradycardia in the young patient because it messes with their conduction fibers. We don't see Lyme disease a lot here in Texas. Oh, yeah. Which is why it's it, a Midwest thing. It's, it's a Midwest thing. Yeah. There's starting to be more cases of it here, but it's still not a super common thing. Mm. Anyway, you were saying Squirrel. old people. <laughs> Actually, there's a cat down there. See, there's all the wildlife. Where do you see the cat? There, there is a cat that lives. It's, yeah, there's down like there. which almost looked like a raccoon because it had a black and white striped tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not yet. Focus, Ginger. Focus. So, uh, um, my question is, why do old people start needing pacemakers? Is it that the conductive cells just aren't healthy anymore, and it's just like all of our cells they're just starting to not? Yeah. Work so you start to have a lot of fatty tissue that infiltrates the heart as you get older, not because of you know unhealthy diet or lifestyle or anything like that. It's just. As, as tissue gets older, it tends to get replaced with fat. That's a little mind-blowing for me. Really? Yeah. 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 So the, so the conduction fiber, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a highway that's just been driven on for a long time, and you start to get little cracks in the asphalt and little potholes here and there. And if the roads department doesn't keep up with it, you know, eventually it's a pretty rough, rocky, disconnected kind of road. Huh. That was a great analogy, Ginger. That's why I said, huh. <laughs> I expected more enthusiasm. It's the mind, the mind blown. blown. Just yeah. imagine that. Okay. All right. I think one thing that's probably important to mention when you talk about pacing is that you need to make sure that the mechanical capture is there also. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it's easy to look at the screen and see the pacer spikes and say, oh, we fixed the problem. And then you reach down and feel the patient's pulse and it's like, nope, still 20. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Thanks for throwing that in there. That's core curriculum stuff that you just hit on. Figured. Yeah, that's good. It's <laughs> good. I mean, we could go back to talking about the hyperpolarization activated cyclic nucleotide gated potassium channel for gene again, if you'd like. You're getting really good at that. I know. I, you know what? You know what happens is when you do this, you see one the next shift. <laughs> so, so side story. The greatest moment in all of residency for me. I happened to read this article about some weird EKG finding, like weird, obscure. I don't even know how I found the article. Like just this random article. Read the article, went and took a nap before my night shift, walk into my night shift, and this brand new, he's like an Air Force Special Forces doc, like super smart, super high-speed doc, awesome teacher. I loved working with him. When I was chief resident, I totally arranged my schedule to give myself all the shifts with him. But super smart guy, and I walk into the very first patient room at 10 o'clock at night starting my shift, and he hands me an EKG, and he's like, here, what do you think? And it had, I don't even remember what it was now. It had that obscure finding. And I was like, oh, I mean, it's clearly this and that and the other. And his mouth dropped. Like, he's staring at me. And from that moment on, like, 
I was the smartest resident he had ever met. <laughs> it was awesome. It happens like that. I get messages from listeners all the time. They're like, I listened to your shortness of breath episode and the very next shift we had blah, blah, blah. So Ginger, I actually like sometimes I'll listen to like MCRIT podcasts and stuff like mm-hmm. that as I'm driving into work. And they're like, sometimes I'll pi- I'll pick not to listen to certain episodes because I'm like, I don't feel like dealing with that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, not tonight. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I think it's... Um, I don't think it's the universe in coincidence. I don't know. What are you looking at? So one of my medics just texted me a picture of a bradycardic EKG. Shut up. Yeah. He's like, is this a left bundle? Is this hyperkalemia? Get out of here. What's the rate? Like 50. Super Proves our point. Hold that thought. I want to see two. She kept getting phone calls like this. So I'll just take it as a chance to tell you that every episode of the Thinking Series features original cover art by a medic who is an artist. Nicholas Gutierrez is featured in this episode. And if you go to medicmindset.com, look at the show notes, you'll find other artists who've created art for chief complaints like syncope and tachycardia, chest pain, and more. We were talking about how, whether it's a... Okay, first of all, in... 30 minutes I have to be teaching online. Okay. Um, oh, that's right. So you don't have to drive anywhere. No. Okay, good. I feel neat? less I feel less bad about being late then. Oh, yeah. No, okay. you're great. All right, good. Isn't it great? Like, I'm just going to stop with you and I'm going to go in there and teach. That's pretty handy. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Should we talk about patients with heart transplants? Are you just going to throw this bomb on me at the end? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have to do all the talking because I know nothing about okay. that. Okay. Um, so transplant patients, we don't see them very often. We're starting to see them a little bit more just as medicine progresses, and they can be complicated. Um, I had one patient in the ER once, but I called her transplant center, and I don't know if the transplant surgeon like missed the, hi, I'm the emergency room doctor part, but he goes, well, do you think she's rejecting her transplant? And I was like, well, I don't know. How would I tell? And he goes, well, normally we do a biopsy. I'm like, okay, so it's the emergency room at two o'clock in the morning, so no. Um, Wait, what do they biopsy? The heart. the heart itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You stick a needle. Hi, you don't no take it. No big deal. You, you don't take it. Well, I'm not going to do it in the ER. <laughs> I'm not doing it anywhere. <laughs> well, I, it's a needle biopsy. Like it's a tiny little slip. It's not like you take like a giant chunk. Um, they they do this all the time, Ginger. Um, not to me. They don't. Well, you they don't stick a needle in the heart and pull out a few little cells. Yeah. And okay. then they look at it under a microscope. These patients, atropine usually does not work. Because remember, atropine is working through the vagal nerve. So these patients are, are de-innervated. So yeah. the atropine isn't going to work. And actually, it can sometimes cause asystole, paradoxically. Um, which, side note, atropine, if it's pushed too slowly or in too low of a dose, can also cause worsening bradycardia. You're hitting the core curriculum right now. Oh, look at that. It's almost like I read a textbook. I didn't. Um, <laughs> he did it one time. A long time ago. But yeah, atropine doesn't really work on those patients. Epinephrine is a much better choice because, again, epinephrine acts directly on the cells of the heart. So stick that in the back of your mind. Stick that at the end of the episode. If they hung on that long, they got that little nugget. There you go. That's all I got. And also, side note, for all the agencies that I'm the medical director for, you are neither credentialed nor authorized to do cardiac biopsies. (laughs) I don't have any caveats. Y'all just do whatever the hell you want. You're on your own. We're all adults here. Thank you for your time. Yeah. And for coming to, to me. Usually Thanks. I have to go to the guest. Thank this you. This is fun. Thanks for having me. It's a bird. Nope. Squirrel. Oh, it's a squirrel. <laughs> and they say we don't have ADD. Wait. <laughs> 
Wait till the birds start coming. I'll you know bring what? out the book. Gonna be you great. guys, she has a whole book with like dog-eared corners and a pen and a highlighter <laughs> and like bookmarks. There's no highlighter. There's highlighting. How's your thumb? Um, it's still injured. Thanks for asking. And I just made an appointment with another hand surgeon. Oh. Yeah. So it was great after I wore the cast for a couple of days. I mean, so it was great after I wore the cast for a month. It was fine for a couple of days. And then I went back to jujitsu and now it's like all jacked up again. So it's not a problem when I play the harp, which is weird. But jujitsu like jacks it up. Did you know that those are two very different activities? Really? <laughs> yes. The harp and jujitsu. You're like your own yin yang. I am. Mm-hmm. It's true. You are. Yeah. Like usually people are seeking their, um, their match of person that's going to balance them. You have the balance within you. Um, what were we talking about? Bradycardia? Mm-hmm. 